Welcome back to Mosaic, the podcast from Education Development Center. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity around the world. I'm Burke Ronofsky, senior writer at EDC. As the pace of innovation in STEM fields continues to accelerate, there is tremendous opportunity for STEM professionals to land high-paying jobs while solving some of the world's greatest challenges. But year after year, workforce data show that the STEM industries are failing to fill all of these roles and that they struggle to recruit and retain women, people of color, and people from marginalized communities. EDC's Andres Enriquez is a nationally known educator who has led transformational education initiatives focused on STEM, literacy, and equity. Andres helped write the National Research Council's Framework for K-12 Science Education, as well as the Next Generation Science Standards. Now, as EDC's Director of STEM Education Strategy, he is focused on finding more ways to broaden participation in STEM education so that more people from all backgrounds see themselves in these essential positions. Andres, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Bert. So nice to be with you. So let's start with you and your experiences. You have just joined EDC as the Director of STEM Education Strategy, um, a position that continues a lot of the work that you've done throughout your career to advance opportunities for STEM learning. When did you become interested in STEM? And was there any seminal experience you had when you thought, this is really what I want to do? I, I remember as a youngster when there were things known as telephones and plain old telephone systems in homes. Remember those? That Yes. I, I remember tinkering with those quite a bit and basically, you know, rewiring my house so that we could have a phone in every room, including the bathroom, which was really fun, annoying to some. Um, but that was my first interest in sort of tinkering and learning how to learn and, and trial and error and taking things apart and putting it back together. Um, and at that point I thought, you know, this is really fun. This is really cool. And this was middle school. I thought, well, I really enjoyed biology at the time as well and science. And I thought maybe, you know, maybe I want to be a biology teacher and that's, that's, that was my passion. And so that's when I really, thought about uh, science in a, in, a, in a very small way, because that's that was my exposure. And did you ever end up teaching? I actually taught as part of my career, um, but I went to a teacher's college at Columbia University, uh, and I did get a teaching degree. I taught some science, but mostly it was just when computers were entering the school systems and they, the positions that were open then were computer teachers. And so I did do some work integrating technology in schools um, in my earlier in my career. So you had these early informal experiences with science. You were uh, reconfiguring phones around your house and everything. You liked tinkering. What drew you to a career in STEM education? I went to a liberal arts college. So those are the kinds of things where you are both, you can both learn science, but you also learn a whole lot of humanities, which was incredibly rich and, um, and satisfying for me. I ended up majoring in psychology and biology. So I didn't exactly know what my trajectory was going to be, but I knew um, going into my first job working with the children's television workshop or Sesame Street, that working with young people and thinking about research and thinking about um, those kinds of things would allow me to understand how children learn and the processes for the ways in which kids learned. And so that was enormously satisfying. I was really working with very talented folks in education, researchers and scientists and folks like that, putting together shows like Sesame Street and uh, early science show called Three to One Contact. 
And I was a researcher exposed to all of these wonderful minds and really learning how to not only think about how kids think, but also think about really good instruction and what good instruction looks like in my early days. Let's stay with that for a moment also. So you've worked at nonprofit organizations, museums, and schools, um, and I know that you continue to be very active in the community in the Corona neighborhood of Queens, where the New York Hall of Science is located. So as you sort of look across all these different communities where you work, um, what do you see as the state of STEM education in the United States? You know, I think it's evolved enormously since my days um, working at Children's Television Workshop, but there is still to this day um, such a lack of of understanding of what science is and how folks can have access to science, particularly in Corona, where I worked with the New- at the New York Hall of Science, there was a sense that science and the way in which you think scientifically is not for everyone. It's for some people and not others. And, and folks don't quite understand what scientists do to tell you the truth or what science can provide in the field. People really understand, you know, oh, you want to be a teacher. You're going to go teach. I understand that career path. You're going to be a lawyer. I understand that career path. You go to law school and you become a lawyer. I think it's a, a little a bit more ethereal for folks in terms of what studying science is, not necessarily to become a science, but what scientific thinking does and what it gives you access to in the broader world. So it sounds like you think that access to STEM education and STEM opportunities is, it's not just an issue of workforce and and career opportunities, but it's also an issue of equity and social justice as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I learned in, in Corona in, at the New York Hall of Science was that only certain people get access to the good stuff. You know, the, the good stuff is scientific thinking, tinkering, working with your hands, um, learning to do, uh, you know, measurement, learning how to do design and design thinking. You know, those are the kinds of things that that scientists do and love. And unfortunately, um, in many of our schools and in our communities, folks think that that is just for the privileged few. And I think this is something that's for everyone. And I think it's it's the, the right for everyone to do that. And I think the other thing that science and scientific thinking does is allow people to engage in citizenship in a very, very different way. It allows you to question the kinds of things that you might not have questioned. It allows you to do deep analysis of things that you might not have thought about in the past. The kinds of ways in which we think about science or train scientists really is to question and to not just question, you know, your own thinking, but to also question other people's thinking. And that's a very big deal. And I think all of our citizens need to do that, especially those that are underserved, as opposed to just getting delivered something to them, that they are actually questioning the ways in which things are happening. They're actually engaged in the ways in which society is being formed. And I think that's a foundation for anyone who is living in the United States. A lot of your work has been around 
broadening participation in technology and STEM for populations and communities have, that have been left out. We've just been talking about this a little bit. But I'm thinking specifically of the work that you did in your first stint at EDC, which was on the Union City Online Project, um, and also the work that you've done more recently at the New York Hall of Science, where you created rich educational outreach programs for people in the local community. What have you learned about broadening participation in STEM from these experiences? The work in Union City was an opportunity to give, you know, first-generation families, and this was in the early days of the internet, access access to broadband and access to technology in ways that they never had access to it before, really motivated a whole lot, a whole generation of young people to really develop not only the skill set, but the interest that they had what other kids might have had in the suburbs and that they were on equal footing with, you know, some of the richest kids in, in, at that point, it was in New Jersey. It really motivated a whole lot of young people to say, hey, I can do this. I can really benefit, not only benefit from this, but I can see my future in this kinds of work. It also changed the dynamics in terms of the ways in which teachers perceived these young people. They were so proficient with the technology the attitudes of the teachers really changed in terms of these are just poor kids and they're not going to go anywhere to like, oh my goodness, these kids have the kinds of skill sets that we want to promote. So the, the attitude shift in the ways in which teachers actually perceive these youngsters completely changed in the early days. In, uh, in Corona and the New York Hall of Science, just giving access to families who had never been to a museum or allowing them to know and open the museum doors to know that the museum is a place where their youngsters could actually learn. That you can also learn not just in schools, but you can learn in environments that are open like this was a, a huge mind shift for people. And I think, I guess one of the things, Bert, that I learned was that I've been doing this for a long time and this is just an ongoing issue that we need to continue to do for 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 a long time. I mean, it's not it's it probably as our demographics change in our country that we just need to do this on an ongoing basis. This is not specialty work. This is not work that um, only a few can do. That the ways in which we sort of think about science and who gets science and how science is taught. This is just part of the ways in which. We need to educate our communities. You've talked about how neighborhood and after-school programs that promote STEM can be really transformative and that they, they can really change how people see themselves and see their communities. But, you know, when we look at the pipeline to STEM careers, it often runs through the same networks and a small group of schools. Um, and I think, you know, we both agree that that's problematic because the types of problems that STEM industries are grappling with now are very complex and benefit from a very diverse group of STEM professionals being, you know, all in the lab together. So on this issue of retention, what can we do to ensure that students from underrepresented and marginalized communities who do fall in love with STEM have opportunities that lead them to entering STEM fields when they're older? I think first, I think there are some of the companies that are traditionally seen as STEM um, can really begin to tap into what are now pretty well-established networks with people of color in, in, in science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, the workforce has learned that 
they also need to diversify. And these companies where traditionally a friend of a friend, which was just being hired, they need to really think through how they can change their dynamics and the ways in which they recruit, they hire, um, and the where, where it is that they do hire from and the networks that they tap into. I think similarly, the, the pathways for lots of young people who are going through STEM, I think there's, there needs to be a whole lot more support, especially in higher education and getting a whole lot more youngsters through the STEM pipeline. I think there's been so traditionally a weeding out process in so many schools in terms of who's going to be a science person in their schools and who's not going to be a science person. Uh, and I think traditionally lots of those doors were closed. And I think a lot of young people going, especially first generation students going, going to school uh, for the very first time, or they could be the first ones in their families to go to, to college might need the kind of support in um, colleges to make sure that they can get through the kinds of coursework, labs, et cetera, to get through schools and, and, and to become those STEM majors. And I think higher sco- schools of higher education are, are, are beginning to transform themselves, not fast enough, obviously, uh, but there are some good things happening in lots of different places where uh, the diversification of the ways in which um, higher education is taking place is happening at a much quicker pace. And do you see a specific role for either the federal government or private foundations to support the entry of more, you know, more people of color, more people from underrepresented communities into STEM fields and into the STEM industries themselves? Both the HBCUs and the, the, the Hispanic serving institutions have had a great deal of success in the last, I would say, 15 years in terms of the ways, the number of courses that they're doing and promoting around STEM. And that there's been such an uptake in the last 10 years, given the changing uh, workforce issues and the interest for young people going into STEM. So lots of the HBCUs, HSIs have really, have really responded to this. And on the federal side, you know, I think there's been some very exciting work that's been done by the National Science Foundation to engage um, uh, both um, higher education and graduate schools around in terms of diversifying. I think foundations have been um, a little bit more cautious, of course, but I think they are, of course, interested in diversifying the workforce, but they've been a bit more cautious. But I think they can really uh, look at ways in which federal government and the National Science Foundation specifically is fast forwarding and maybe, you know, learn from the ways in which they're doing some of this work and uh, perhaps supplementing some of that work uh, that the federal government is doing, or perhaps even a partnership would be um, interesting between public foundations and private foundations to do more of this work. And then finally, talk about your new role at EDC. So how do you anticipate working with foundations and funders and, and partners to expand opportunities and increase equity in STEM education? I was at EDC 20 years ago, which was a full generation ago. And there is truly a commitment to, to diversity, equity, and inclusion from leadership on down, which is super impressive, I have to say. And it runs through the work and in particular around the STEM work 
my role is really to uh, to increase the visibility of Education Development Center in terms of its work around around STEM. Um, and what I'm looking forward to is really connecting back with all of the work that I've done in the past and connecting lots of the work that's going on at EDC to some of those folks that I've worked with in the past. So I'm looking forward to that very much. Andres Enriquez is the Director of STEM Education Strategy at EDC. Andres, best of luck in your role and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Bert. Thanks for listening to Mosaic. To learn more about EDC's efforts to broaden participation in STEM education, visit us online at edc.org.